Good morning. Welcome to Radius uh, Rocky Creek. Glad you guys are here today. This morning, you got an outline. I want to talk about situations where there is danger in being a stranger. All right. I need you to follow me today. A lot to cover. I think it's really practical for your life today. What God's word is going to teach us today. Dangerous situations where you're different or you stand out. It's a dangerous situation because you're an outsider and you're the one considered the stranger. I'll give you a couple examples. If you're an opposing fan of a team and you go to the opposite team stadium wearing their color jersey, you're in danger. That's especially true if you go to the Philadelphia Eagles stadium. They are known, if you Google it, they're like number one on almost every list of the most ruthless fans. And so they've been known to beat up the opposing team's mascot. And I don't mean the, like the big guy that's got a suit on. I mean just a Kansas City Chief mascot that had put some paint on his face. They beat him up twice in the same season. He finished the year on crutches, all because he's wearing the other team's color. Some of you are like, that's awesome, right? They're known to throw snowballs, batteries, full cans of beer at opposing fans. You ever been hit with a full can of beer? I haven't, but I imagine it hurts. Violence was so frequent during the Eagles games at their old veteran stadium that a criminal court complete with a judge was installed inside the stadium. They were trying people inside the stadium during the football game because of the violence in their stands. There's danger if you wear the opposing team's colors with the Eagles. Another example, cops in Chicago in the past, they they don't do this anymore. They got in trouble for it. They would catch a gang member And what they would do is they would take this gang member and put him in the police van and drive to the rival gang territory and drop him off. Go ahead and find your way back out of here. Dangerous. Sometimes they would just drive the police van, open the door and show him to the rival gang people to say, hey, this guy's been snitching on you with the cops. Stranger. And you're in danger because you're a stranger. Last example. If you as an American with your cute little touristy t-shirt and your sunglasses and a camera around your neck and your little neon fanny pack. If you get on a plane and you go to Syria or you go to Afghanistan or you go to Pakistan and you just start skipping down the streets looking like an American, you're in danger. You don't look like them. You don't talk like them. You're a stranger that stands out. Well, here's the truth this morning. As a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you are considered a stranger in the world. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to follow God, if you want to live a life that honors Jesus, you will be a stranger. You will be different. You will stand out. The Bible says you're an alien. The Bible says you're a foreigner. You're an exile. You're a temporary resident. This world is not your home. You are a stranger on this earth. And there's some dangers that come with being a Christian stranger. There's some places in this world that just the name of Jesus will get you killed. Your life is actually in danger because you claim the name of Jesus. I'll tell you what the biggest danger for you is from Leesville, South Carolina or Gilbert or Lexington. The biggest danger for you in the United States of America is that you might fall in love with this world, that you might want to make this place your home. There's this danger that you might get too happy here in your temporary home in the world, doing it the comfortable way, the easy way, the American way that before you know it, you and your family don't look any different than the unchurched, lost family, two doors down. There are dangers to you as a Christian stranger. First Peter 2.11, great verse for us this morning. It'd be a great one for you to memorize. 
Dear friends, this is Peter. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles on this earth to abstain from sin, from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. The danger to you as a Jesus following stranger in this world is that this world is like gravity. This world is like a magnet trying to pull you towards itself. And God's word urges us this morning. It pleads with us. You are a stranger. God calls you to be in the world, not of the world. And there are some dangers we need to avoid so that we don't fall in love with the world. So this morning, we're going to jump right back into Joseph's story. We're going to watch Joseph overcome some of these dangers, some of these gravitational pulls from the world to pull him in. He's in a foreign land. He's in a foreign culture. He is a God follower and a God worshiper in a place where others aren't following God and aren't worshiping God. He's a stranger, but he's not going to give in to the dangers. He's in the Egyptian world, but he's not of the Egyptian world. Great challenge for us this morning. You live in America. Are you of America? Are your kids of America? Or are we simply strangers that are passing through? Let's find out together. So you know if you're watching Netflix or if you're watching Amazon Prime and like the next show comes on, right at the beginning of the next show, it gives you a recap of the show that happened before, right? I don't know about you. I always need that recap. Even if I watched the show yesterday, I'm like, I can't remember what happened. So I'm gonna give you a 20-second recap. Joseph's been in Egypt for 13 years. He was 17 years old. His brothers hated him, so they sold him as a slave to some people in Egypt. Potiphar, this high-ranking Egyptian official, buys Joseph as a slave and puts him in charge of his house. Everything's going great until Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph. And so she seduces him. She tries to sleep with him. He runs away, and she's left holding his cloak, and she cries rape. He raped me. And so he's thrown into prison. While he's in prison, there's some important guys there that work for Pharaoh. And Joseph ends up getting to help them. He interprets their dreams and he ends up going to Pharaoh and helping Pharaoh with his dreams. And so Joseph, with God's help, tells Pharaoh, hey, there's about to be seven years of famine in Egypt. Or there's been seven years of prosperity in Egypt. And then there's gonna be seven years of famine. That's what your dreams mean, Pharaoh. So that's where we pick up the next episode in Joseph's life this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Genesis 41. It'll be on the screen as well as we jump in together. Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, since you not only know what these crazy dreams mean, but you know how to fix the problem. That's what we talked about last week. Clearly no one else is intelligent or as wise as you are. You, Joseph, will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. First danger. The first danger that Joseph's going to face trying to live for God as a stranger in the middle of a godless Egypt. First stranger danger for Joseph. The first gravitational pull on him from the world is prosperity. It's his wealth. It's his money. Joseph has been brought out of prison where he spent years. He has cleaned up, new haircut. He shaves that nasty beard. He gets some new clothes. He solves all of the problems for Pharaoh and he's handed the keys to the most powerful nation in the world. 
He's given new jewelry. He's given new Egyptian clothing made of fine linen and a big gold chain around his neck. He has access to limitless wealth. One of our taglines here at Radius, real life, real faith. So let's get real for a second, okay? This is your opinion. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to fess up, if you, whatever. This is just your opinion. Does it feel like to you that poor people are more spiritual than rich people? That's kind of a real question, all right? Does it feel like the poor person that's struggling to get by in life is actually more spiritual than the rich guy that's the CEO of his company? I'll be honest. I like it better when people are poor. It's just a better story. I like it better when they're poor. I like it better when our heroes in the Bible are poor and struggling. It seems more spiritual to me. It seems more inspirational to me when they struggle and they fight just to get by. When I was in college, I had just started walking with Jesus. I got saved as a sophomore in high school, but it wasn't until a sophomore year of college that a football teammate of mine really showed me what it was like to walk with Jesus. Not just say you're a Christian and go to church, but actually live a life for Jesus. And so I wanted to learn. I wanted to memorize scripture. And I didn't want any of the fake American Christianity. I didn't want the slick back preacher on the TV Christianity. I wanted real Christianity. So I memorized this set of verses. I want you to listen to this. Tell me this is not awesome. This is Paul. He's bragging about how hard he works for Jesus. I have worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. He says, I've been whipped so many times, can't even count how many times I've been whipped. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me the 40 minus one. You know what the 40 minus one was, right? It's 39 lashes. The 40th lash would kill you. He said, I got that fun event five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day on the open sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people have turned on me. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. Here comes the poverty piece. I have been hungry. You ever been hungry for Jesus? Like literally hungry. I've been thirsty. I've been, I've gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. How spiritual does that sound? And that sounds awesome. That's not like real Christianity. There's no way a rich guy could do that, right? That's what I think in my brain. Listen to Paul a little bit later in Philippians. Listen to the same Paul, the same guy that's bragging about the lashes and the hunger and the cold and the shivering. Verse 12 of Philippians 4. I, Paul, know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or with little. 4.13, we all know this verse. We think it's meant for to help us score a touchdown. It actually has a real meaning. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says, I've learned the secret. I've learned how to rely on Jesus, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor. Joseph seemed to know this secret too. He followed and trusted God in poverty and now he's gonna follow and trust God in prosperity. Here's the reality. There's a lot of people in here to make a lot of money sitting in this room. And sometimes you feel guilty and you feel like I should apologize for it. And even the ones in here, they're going, I don't make a lot of money. I'm middle-class. You are filthy rich compared to the rest of the world. Half of the world, almost half of the world lives on $2,000 a year. 
$5.50 a day. That's what your Starbucks coffee costs. That's their budget for the day. So the people in this room are rich. We are wealthy. We know what it's like to live in prosperity, but I need you to hear this. I'm going to say it twice. There is nothing less spiritual. There is nothing sinful about having money and prosperity. You don't have to feel guilty about making a lot of money. God, it's not a, you, God didn't wake up one day and go, oh, I didn't mean for him to make that much. God gave it to you. There's nothing less spiritual. There is nothing sinful about having money and prosperity. But, there's always a but. The Bible is clear that having money and prosperity is dangerous. Having wealth is dangerous to your soul. Here's some warnings. You've heard them. Easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. You can't serve God in money. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Having money, having wealth, having prosperity can be dangerous as you try to live as a stranger in this money-crazy, money-craving world. It's dangerous. It's not sinful. It's dangerous. There's an elderly couple. It's a great story. They, their names were George and Bessie. Okay, so first of all, their names are awesome. They just sound old. George and Bessie. If your name's George, I'm sorry. George and Bessie went to the county fair every year. This was their big event of the year. In fact, it was the closest thing they ever had to a vacation. They looked forward to the county fair every single year. And each year, George would say to Bessie, I sure would like to ride in that crop dust and acrobatic airplane. Each year, Bessie would say, I know, George, but that airplane ride costs $10, and $10 is $10. So they go year after year to the county fair. And every year, George asks Bessie. And so one year he says, Bessie, I'm 81 years old. If I don't ride that airplane today, I may never get another chance. And Bessie said, I know, George, but that airplane ride costs $10. And $10 is $10. The pilot overhears him and says, folks, I, I've seen you here year after year. I know you've been wanting to ride in my airplane all that time. I know that money is pretty important to you and you don't part with it lightly. I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll take you both up for a wild ride. And if you can both keep quiet for the entire ride and not say one word, I won't charge you a thing. But if you say one word, it'll cost you $10. George and Bessie are like, we're in. They get in the plane, they take off. The pilot does all kinds of twists and turns and rolls and dives. And he didn't hear a peep from George or Bessie. And he tried his fastest upside roll and spin and dive. And it was completely quiet from the back. And so they landed and the pilot looked at George and he said, I don't believe it, George. I did everything I could, everything I could think of to get you to yell, but you didn't. And George said, I was going to say something when Bessie fell out of the airplane, but $10 is $10. $10 really is just $10. $1,000 is just $1,000. A million dollars is a million dollars. The question for you is not how much money you have. The question is, how much of your heart does your money have? The question is not how much money you have. The question is, how much of your soul, how much of your life, how much of a hold does money have on you? Or can we just learn the secret this morning? that Paul and Joseph and others have learned and they're trying to teach us that no matter how much money you have, you're a stranger here. It's not your money. It's not your money. It's God's money. And you're just supposed to trust them. 
And you're supposed to use the money and prosperity God has blessed you with to be a blessing to others. And for Joseph, as good as life is about to get in Egypt, as wealthy and as prosperous as it is going to be, it's still Egypt. It's not his home. He's not home. He's a stranger passing through. He's just trying to live and serve and follow and trust God, whether he's in prison with nothing or whether he's riding around in Pharaoh's chariot with everything. Verse 43. Then Pharaoh had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. I need you to understand what all of Egypt would mean. These Old Testament scholars would say there was no land like Egypt. It was the cream of the crop, the best. Remarkable influence, incredible educational opportunities, strong, mighty military, limitless wealth. And Pharaoh turns to Joseph the slave and says, I'm putting you in charge of all of it. Verse 44, Pharaoh said to him, I'm Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paniah. I'd be like, no thanks. <laughs> Just call me Joseph. Joe will do anything but Zaphonath Paniah. He also gave him a wife whose name was Asenath, and she was the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So we could just read right through that, but understand, Joseph marries an Egyptian woman. Her dad, Joseph's new father-in-law, is a high-ranking priest in the temple in Egypt that worships the solar system. That's what he just married into. Okay, so we'll get to that in-law situation in a minute. So Joseph took charge of the entire land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he began serving in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he inspected the entire land of Egypt. Next way that we see Joseph being pulled towards the world is the stranger danger of power and position. He's gone from a slave to having all this power to having this mighty position. He is in the world, but now he is being tempted and pulled to be of the world. He is 30 years old old, 30 years old. Last week he was sitting in a prison and today he's riding around with gold chains around his neck and fine Egyptian linen like Jay-Z in a chariot with an entourage of people saying bow down when he rides by. How many 30 year olds do you know that can handle that? There's 30 year olds I know that can't handle their promotion at Chick-fil-A. They move to the drive-thru and it goes to their head, right? He's 30 in charge of the entire nation. Doesn't go to his head. How many 30-year-olds do you know that could be the second most powerful man on the earth and handle that power and position without it going straight to their head and ruining them? And we talked about this last week. Joseph's character seems to be big enough, seems to be strong enough foundation to handle it. But man, the temptation's got to be there. Don't you know? I think men in the room would understand this. Like he's been a slave, he's been in prison, and now people respect me. They do what I tell them to do. They bow down when I ride by. How does that not go to your head? I'll be honest, if I'm Joseph, I'm using my power and prosperity. I'm getting on my chariot. You know the first place I'm going? Potiphar's house. Bring out Potiphar's wife. Remember her? The one that grabbed his cloak and accused him of rape? And as my entourage yells to her, bow down, you know what I'm going to say? Bow a little further. Remember me? I'm the guy you accused of rape. I'm the guy that you accused me of something I never would do. You ruined my reputation as a man and I ended up in prison because of your accusation. Bow a little further and I want my cloak back. 
clean it before you bring it back. And you know what? I need some help in the palace. I need somebody to cook my breakfast. I need somebody to clean my clothes. I got this new Egyptian fine linen. You can't put that in the dryer. I need you to come take care of it. Why don't you come to the palace every morning? And when you're done, say, yes, sir. Would you not be tempted to do that? He's in prison because of a rape charge because of her. We have no record of Joseph doing that. We have no record of him trying to use his power and position to settle the score. We have no record of this power and position going to his head. Most Egyptian 30-year-olds with this power would have 15 wives and 15 prostitutes on the side. you know how many Joseph has? One wife. He's a one-woman man. Most 30-year-old Egyptian men with this kind of power, prosperity, and influence are using their power and their wealth to influence, to manipulate, to get more wealth. We have no record of Joseph doing this. Why? Because he isn't living for himself. He's living for God. He's a stranger passing through. This world is not his home and all the power and prosperity it could possibly offer Joseph doesn't compare to his relationship with God and using his power and position that God has given him to help and serve and be generous to others. Chuck Carter, one of our partners here at Radius Rocky Creek, works for Amazon. His title for Amazon is this. He's the senior manager for the risk management department at Amazon. Not sure if you've heard about Amazon, but it's kind of a big deal. All right, They visit my house a lot, every day in fact. So there's this temptation, there's this really this opportunity for this position and power to go to Chuck's head. He's got this really great job, this really prominent position at this really prominent business. Let me tell you what Chuck has done with his position and power. He's created a system that allows any employee at Amazon to volunteer in their community. Now, I could talk to you about how broken the system was when Chuck inherited it, but he doesn't want me to because it's throwing somebody else under the bus. I really wanted to. It was some good details. All right. We're not going to do that. This program that Chuck has started has spread across 30 states and 140 Amazon communities. They expect by the end of 2020 to have helped 2,000 nonprofits, at the same time opening thousands of Amazon employees' eyes to the needs in their community. Incredible testimony of a guy here at Radius using his position, his affluence, his power God has given him to be generous to others. And we have story after story after story like that. We have teachers in here that are using their position to love on kids the way Jesus would love on. We have coaches. We have administrators. We have businessmen men and women. We have nurses and doctors using their offices. We, we have it all over this place. It's the radius way. You don't have the position and the power by chance. You have it because God gave it to you and he expects you to use it. And that's what Joseph does. I could read. I got a bunch of verses here. I'm going to summarize for you, okay? Here's what happens. It happened exactly like Joseph said was going to happen. They have seven years of great prosperity. They couldn't even house all the grain that they were coming. They said Joseph was keeping records of all the grain, and it was like sands on the seashore. He couldn't even keep up with it. He just stopped keeping up with it at some point during the seven years. They had so much. But then sure enough, after seven years, famine time hits. And it doesn't just hit in Egypt. It hits all over the world. People are starving. And the text says, when people would cry out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, go to Joseph. Do whatever Joseph tells you to do. And so they fed these people all over the world. Joseph used his power, his position, his influence to save thousands of lives. Joseph had a big radius. And he was using his power and his influence for God. Not only is he busy at work, he's busy at home. He and his wife are starting a family. His wife, that's the daughter of Potiphera, who's the 
pagan priests that worship the solar system and they start having children. Verse 50. During this time, before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife Asnath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. Third way we see the world pulling on Joseph. And the third way we see the world pulling on you is the stranger danger of parenthood. He's about to try to raise God-worshiping, God-fearing boys in the middle of Egypt. And you're trying to raise God-fearing, God-worshiping people in the middle of America. Joseph was 17 when he came to Egypt as a slave. He's been here 13 years. He learned the language. He had probably sat in prison wondering, will I ever have a wife? Will I ever have a chance to name my children? And now he's made it. He's got an Egyptian wife. He's got power and respect. He's well-known. His father-in-law is an important priest in the pagan temple. It would just make sense to start attending there and worshiping the stars. It would be so tempting to just have his family live the Egyptian life instead of the American dream, chasing the Egyptian dream, whatever that is. Building pyramids, I have no idea. Comfortable, secure, happy, satisfied, wealthy, powerful, high on the social and political ladder. Joseph is a stranger, but he's adapted pretty well to the Egyptian life. And now he's got two little boys. Why not just raise them Egyptian? Why not just raise them like everybody else? Not Joseph. This is a major development in the story of Genesis, and it's a major development in the life of Joseph. He names his two boys, not Egyptian names, God-fearing, God-worshiping Hebrew names. Big deal. I don't know where the story goes from here if he names them Egyptian names. But he puts his foot in the ground. He puts his stake in the ground. He gives no indication that these boys are going to go hang out at granddad's solar temple, right? He gives no indication of that. I don't think Joseph's parenting is going to look like the parenting of his Egyptian neighbor. I think the way Joseph is going to parent is to look strange in Egypt. He's going to be passing down the ways and the truth about the real God to his two boys. I wish I had time for a full parenting sermon. I don't. You'd all be asleep and we'd miss lunch. All right. I don't, I wish I did, but we have 250, 260 adults every Sunday here and a hundred kids. So parenting is clearly a Big deal here. Raising kids that love Jesus in this world, in our culture, is hard work. You already know that. The danger is to let our guard down and relax. There was a dad who had 10 kids. He said, man, when the first kid would get sick, when the first kid, you guys that got multiple kids, you can relate to this. First kid would like cough or sneeze. I'm calling the ambulance, right? Like he's dying. I'm going to call somebody. He said, 10th kid swallows a quarter. And I'm like, eh, it'll come out, right, of your allowance. So it's going to come out of your allowance and it'll come out of your body. You'll be safe. I'm not calling anybody. He begins to let his guard down. He begins to relax. I'm telling you, the temptation is when everybody else is doing life this way and you're trying to do life for Jesus, you're going to look weird. You're going to look really strange. And the temptation is to let your guard down and relax. You can't relax. The world's not relaxing on your kids. Not only are you living here as a stranger, you're raising strangers. For you folks in here that have kids that are not in college yet, you're preparing them to send them to a place where nobody, hardly anybody believes in Jesus. They're going to deal with professors every single day that's going to challenge their faith. 
We're going to raise kids that love and follow Jesus. Your family's going to look different. It's going to look strange. The way you handle technology and phones and computers, the way you handle dating, the way you handle boundaries and rules and discipline, the way you handle margin in your schedule, the way you teach your kids about work, about generosity, about serving others, the way you handle almost everything with your kids is going to be so foreign to people and you're going to look so weird and you're going to hear it a million times. I'm the only kid who lives like this. And the tendency is to relax and to let your foot off the gas. Don't do it. Joseph puts his foot down. He puts a stake in the ground and he says, we're going to be in the world. We're going to be in Egypt and we're going to try to influence this, this Egypt for God, but we're not going to be of Egypt. We're not going to do it. Last pull of the world on Joseph. Last magnetic pull on him that the world's trying to suck him in is the stranger danger of the past. Again, I wish I had more time here. The naming of his first son is very interesting, what the name means. Verse 51, Joseph named his older son Manasseh, which you're like, that's a terrible name. Well, could have been Zaphonath Paniah Jr., right? So we'll go with Manasseh. Manasseh's better. And he said, this is what Manasseh's name means. God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. So here's a danger, okay? Here's a danger. We all have sin. We all have a past. We all have pain in our past, whether it's sin or whether it's just something that happened to us. And what the world wants to do is they want your past to disqualify you. It's this constant reminder. And this is what the devil wants to do too. He wants to take your past. He wants to take your sin and constantly remind you of it. And what Joseph does, because he's got pain in his past, he names his son something that means God has made me forget my troubles. Now, has Joseph completely forgot about his brothers and his dads? No. What God has done is taken the sting off of it. It doesn't keep him from getting out of the bed anymore. Over time, God's grace has worked on him. This happens in your life. The devil tries to throw some sin back at you from your past and you remind yourself, no, God's already dealt with that. God has manasseed me. He's made me forget. My 10-year-old daughter had a bad dream the other night. She comes in my room like five o'clock in the morning. She's crying. She lays with me in the bed. She tells me a little bit about her dream and she stops crying immediately. Did I make her forget her dream? I took the sting off, right? Like now I'm with dad and the sting's gone. That's exactly what God does for you. He takes the sting off. He helps you remember. He helps you forget and not to remember your pain. I want to close with a story. I think there's still some like some mystery to in the world of the world. What does that mean? All right, so I had a story happened about 15 years ago. God just helped me remember it this week. I hadn't thought about this in forever, but I remembered it and I thought, you know what, that kind of fits. So I'll share it with you. Uh, my wife and I, a month before we got married, we were invited to my roommate in college. He, he was having a big engagement party for he and his fiance, getting married about the same time, okay? So they're having this big engagement party in Rome, Georgia, which is about three, I don't know how far it is, three and a half, four hours, something like that. It's a long, long drive. So we get in the car and we're headed down. A month before we get married, it's an exciting time of our life and we're headed down to Barrett, my roommate who played wide receiver from, with me four years in college. We're close. We're going to their engagement party. I'm wearing American Eagle short sleeve polo shirt. I don't even know if American Eagle was cool then. I know it's not cool now, but I wore it, all right? Green stripe, white stripe. I had on khaki pants and like boat shoes and my shirt was untucked, all right? Courtney's got on winter pants and a sweater. Winter white pants and a sweater. She will never forget, I can promise you. So we pull up to what looks like the Biltmore house. I'm not kidding, all right? It's this drive, you pull in and we see people up on the steps. I see my roommate up there. I see his fiance up there and this is a black tie affair. 
I'm talking about black tie. Like they look like they're going to the prom and we look like we're going to Denny's. <laughs> All right. Like it is legit. Like, what are we going to do? So Courtney, immediate tears. I don't know what to do now when she cries. I definitely didn't know what to do then. All right. So I go right into coach mode. All right. And I'm like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to clean yourself up. You're going to go into the bathroom. You're going to clean shit. She really appreciated this, right? You're going to get yourself together and we're going to go find us a corner in this mansion and we're going to hide. All right. She, she reminded me this week that I said that we're going to hide in a corner. So we're getting out of the car and I see somebody that's dressed like me. I'm like, Oh babe, there's somebody. It was the valet guy was the only other guy dressed like me. So I'm tucking my American Eagle shirt in, right? As we get in and we're walking in, we didn't know if it was a country club or a house and it was a house. That's how big it was. So we do exactly that. We go and we find us a little corner and we try to blend in as best we can and talk to as few people as possible. And we try to shelter ourselves. And I think as Christians, a lot of times, that's what we think living in the world looks like. Let's go get in a corner. Let's don't talk to sinners. Let's stay right here. Let's try to protect ourselves. Let's try to protect our kids. Let's don't let them fail. Let's don't let them, let's don't engage the world in any way. Let's just stay right here in our corner. I don't think that's what in the world, that other world means. I just don't think that's what it means. So my roommate's mom, her name's Stephanie. She's like four foot tall, like the sweetest, real country lady, pretty oblivious probably to what we have on. And so she keeps coming to our little corner and grabbing our hands and taking us to meet people. She's like, come on, I want you to meet Barrett's Sunday school team. I want you to meet Barrett's high school football coach. Come on, we're just meeting the rich and famous of Rome, Georgia, looking ridiculous. I think that's what it looks like to be in the world, not of the world. You get out of your comfort zone, even if it means somebody taking you by the hand. You get out of your comfort zone and you engage the world. You get out of your comfort zone, even with your kids, and you engage this culture and you try to influence it for Jesus. Did we feel strange as we were walking around completely underdressed, meeting the rich and famous of this city? Absolutely, and that's part of it. You're going to feel like a stranger. A little bit later in the evening, Joe Knight walks in. So Joe Knight was our equipment manager at PC. He was a football player. He got hurt, and so to keep him on scholarship, they put him like in charge of all the equipment. Well, Joe Knight and his wife walk in and guess what? They're dressed just like us. They had missed the memo too. Only four people in the whole place. And so we're like, yes, right? So we go in to the back porch and we're hanging out with Joe and his wife and we're talking. I think that's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. That, yeah, I go back. That's what Sunday mornings are for. That's what your small group's for. That's what these reps in biblical community is for. It was so nice for us to stand there with Joe and his wife and say, you know what? There's some other strange people here too. That's what Sunday morning's for. You're reminded when you come here to worship that, you know what? I'm not the only one. My kid might say he's the only one that can't do this with his phone or do this with his car. He's not the only one. There's another group of people there trying to do this thing for Jesus, trying to engage the culture and be in the world, but not let the world get its claws in you and become of the world. And so we would go meet the rich and famous and be way out of our comfort zone. And then we'd come back to Joe and his wife and get fed again. That's why we think Sunday mornings are really important. If you and your family are in town, you need to make it a priority to be here or to be somewhere, it doesn't have to be here, be somewhere where they're preaching the Bible, somewhere. Got in the car, way home, somehow survived the evening. And about halfway home, we got a call that one of our friends, one of our good friends been killed in a plane crash. He's a pilot. The worst night ever, right? There's nothing that reminds you that you're in the world, not of the world, like a death. I don't know how much you watched the news this week on WIS. The situation with this little girl and Casey. 
But if this world is home, I I don't want to be home. There's got to be more than this, right? I watch the evil and and I'm trying to explain to my kids who's the same age what happened to this little girl. And I I don't have words. I don't have explanation. I don't have anything except we're in this world, but this ain't home. Got to be something better. There's got to be something more. So just a reminder this morning for us from Joseph's story. In the world, not of the world. Engage the culture. Come back and catch your breath. Get fed again and go back and engage the culture and come back and get fed again. And it's this healthy cycle of life. And it's hard. It's really hard. I hope we can do it together. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot of application here. I uh, hadn't really planned to do this much, but I, it seems seems odd to mention that little girl's story and not pray for her family. I don't know her. I'm not connected to her in any way. I just feel the depth of, of just how awful that situation is, God. So I, I pray you would comfort that family. You would strengthen that family. You would give a joy and a peace to that family that only you can give, God. I don't know how you spoke to folks in the room today. Maybe it's a prosperity issue. Maybe it's a money issue. We just realize we're not spending your money the way you want us to. Maybe you've given us, given us a position of power and position and influence and we're not using it for you and we would take the step in the right direction today. Maybe we would realize we've let our foot off the gas parenting and we've turned a little bit more into the world and we need to, we need to rein it back in. We need to talk more to our kids about you. Open that dialogue back up. Eat eat more dinners at the table together, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's our past that keeps creeping back in with our sin and with our shortcomings. And we, today we say, nope, nope. Jesus already dealt with that. I've already been manassed. (laughs) God's already helped me forget that. He's already moved me past it. And so today we would claim that. Lord, we sing a song to you this morning about you being the cornerstone, about our hope being in nothing less than you, about you being our rock, about us anchoring ourselves to you. And we're gonna be in the world. We're gonna engage our radius. We're gonna try our best to influence people for you. But God, we don't wanna be of the world. Would you help us do it? We give all of that to you this morning in your son's great name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This audio is provided as a free ministry of Radius Church. If you would like to reproduce this audio, please feel free to do so. We ask that you do not charge for any reproductions that you make. If you would like to know more about Radius, please visit us online at radiuschurch.org or download our app from your app store.